life uh, Sunday. Uh, usually most churches choose the Sunday closest to the original decision of Roe v. Wade back in 1973. Some churches do the third Sunday. Um, we usually take at least one week, sometimes a couple weeks, sometimes the entire month to discuss this topic because we believe uh, it's such a huge and important topic. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll begin. Father, we thank you that a couple years ago, um, by your grace, uh, you had Roe v. Wade struck down, that many lives have been saved since then. Uh, Lord, there is much work to do, so I pray we would continue to put our hand to the plow and not look back. I pray you'd continue to um, have uh, each state um, do what is righteous in your sight in the issue of life. We pray, God, that you would use our church to continue to shine bright on this issue. We thank you for uh, organizations like Thrive, Coalition for Life, and many, many others who have fought the battle for many, many years and stood firm. And we pray that they would continue to do so. We pray that the churches across America would stand firm on this issue, would speak truth to this issue. We pray that the pulpits would be bold to address it and that your name would be glorified. We thank you that you are a God who rules and reigns in righteousness. Be with us now, Lord. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive from you. All right, turn to the book of Proverbs, chapter 31. Proverbs 31, and we're going to look at two verses in Proverbs today and, and kind of go from there as our springboard. It says in verse 8 of Proverbs 31, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. And really what we're doing in addressing this issue and speaking to it and taking a stand for life is we're enacting what it says here. Open your mouth in some translations say something like for those who are speechless or those who can't speak for themselves and how how much are the unborn in that position unable to speak for themselves uh, if you were here last week and um and came back this week and if you can handle last week's sermon and you can handle this sermon then you can probably handle just about anything i can preach at you all right <clears throat> Sometimes on issues like this, we are a, you know, a very conservative church. Um, it can sometimes seem like on certain issues like this that we're preaching to the choir. Not we, I. I'm preaching to the choir. Which, what does that mean? Have, are you guys familiar with that term? Where you're just presenting an argument or an opinion to people who already agree with it. But I actually think it's important to preach to the choir at times for a number of reasons. One, we preach to the choir because um, even the choir needs to hear it now and again. And we, we must also preach to the choir that which the choir already knows so it doesn't forget it. If you ever read the book of Second uh, Peter, a couple times he uses the word remember or a reminder, depending on your version, 
And, he's, and he says, I say this by way of reminder. Meaning, you already know this, but, but what? You need to be reminded of it. So he's, he's saying things. And oftentimes, really most sermons are really, I mean, saying, you know, hopefully what the word already says. And they, they're saying things that you've probably heard, but are just being put in different ways to present it to you. And hopefully you can be like, oh yeah, that passage makes sense, or I've heard that before, or oh, yeah, that, that lines up with this. But we must also preach to the choir because the choir doesn't always listen. Right? I mean, think about it. How many claim to have believed and walked away from the faith? So the choir doesn't always listen, so the choir needs to be preached to. And I must also preach to the choir because the members of the choir change, right? New members come. So if we just think, oh, you've hit a topic once and you're good to go, like, that's not the case for multiple reasons, including new people coming. But we don't just preach to the choir. Um, Hopefully and prayerfully, I preach tough words that the choir, you all, need to hear. And occasionally, at least, I hope I ruffle your feathers a little bit. If you just nod your head all the time and aren't ever convicted, then that either says something about my preaching or it says something about your heart or maybe a combination. So I want to preach tough words that the choir needs to hear, which means it won't always be words that the choir wants to hear. Are you hearing me? Um, In 1974, uh, Archbishop Michael Ramsey visited Chile, and it was under a new white uh, right-wing regime. And while he preached in the church, there was an armed guard that waited outside. And one of the reporters that was reporting on this uh, archbishop preaching um, was, was talking with the guard, and the guard asked him, was there any politics in the sermon? He must, he must uh, stay with things of the soul because politics is for us. And as he said the last statement, he gently patted his gun. So there can be a very real sacred and secular divide among many people where they see the secular over here and they see the sacred over here. And once they walk into the church, we're dealing with the things that are sacred. And once we walk out into the world, into the things of work, we're dealing with the secular. Um, I, would, I would argue against that. These we're call, if we're called to be, I mean, even if you just think, like, for a second, we're called to be salt and light, right? But if we think that there's, like, a, a, a secular out there that we're not called to be a part of and influence and change, and we see things uh, divided, then what happens is we end, up with, we end up with universities that are Christian, but the only thing that's Christian about them is the fact that you have to go to chapel and they have a mandatory Bible class you have to take to graduate. In fact, they did a survey of Christian universities a few years back, 
and about half the faculty said they were confident. Um, only half the faculty said they were confident they could integrate faith and learning in their particular discipline. Like that's 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 disturbing. Because if you, whatever field that you are, are entering into and whatever, you know, line of work you're going to do, one of the most important questions is, is how does my faith integrate with, with the field that I'm in? How does it work to be an engineer or a computer programmer? How do I bring my faith with me? And what is integrated about it? And what does God have to say about all the different fields out there? Because they're all his, right? I mean, all those fields are his. So what does he have to say about it? So when we talk about issues like politics, issues like sacred versus the secular, I mean, really what we're talking about is what is the role of the state and what does the Bible have to say about it? Questions like what political responsibility does the Christian individual have? Questions like should we bear arms if asked to by the government? Questions like are there legitimate rulers are legitimate rulers agents of God, and if so, to what extent? And Jesus addressed these things. But sadly, they end up more as like a footnote in teachings and just being slightly mentioned, never the, the primary topic of a sermon. So Jesus addressed it. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. We have the, the well-known passage in Romans 13 dealing with our role in regards to the state or the civil government. 1 Peter 2, telling us to honor the king. But the doctrine um, is usually treated, again, just as a side note or a footnote. Well, this, this affects things if we start to think our role or politics just are very small aspects of the Christian life. We're called to be change agents. Ideally, we're changing what? The world. What are we called to be? The ambassadors. That's our theme for the year. We are ambassadors for Christ. Well, what do ambassadors do? They take that message. And what's the primary message? It is the gospel. And we always, 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 always keep that at the forefront. The gospel. What is that? The good news of Jesus Christ. That you can be saved from your sins because of the sacrifice that Christ made for you. Repent and believe. But this is not happening And what happens is, is we end up with institutions like that. They, they've ended up with a sacred-secular split. So they have universities. They have their chapel. They've got their one or two Bible classes. And then everything else is essentially secular. And then we send those students out thinking they're well-equipped to be change agents in their field of study. One of the things that I endeavor to do when I'm preaching is I want to I verbally attack the enemies of our day. I mean, these can be institutions, these can be ideologies, these can be worldviews, these can be false religions, these can be false teachings, these can be false teachers. Ephesians 5 tells us in verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. But then Paul goes on to say, rather expose them. So you have the unfruitful works. And what are those unfruitful works? They're of darkness. So take no part in them. Hey, that's good. Hopefully if you're a believer, you're not partaking in the unfruitful works of darkness. But also, 
were to expose them. But instead, expose them. Expose the deeds of darkness. So I, I verbally attack the enemies of our day. I also attack the enemies of tomorrow. Why? Well, so they never rise. Or at least they're challenged as they try and rise. And I also regularly attack the enemies of yesterday so that they stay yesterday and don't become again today. It's interesting if you kind of keep your beat on different things in in Christian culture. uh, Being woke is actually going out of style pretty quickly in what some people might consider conservative Christian circles. So there's a debate uh, what to do with some of these leaders and pastors who went woke uh, and now are, are coming back. Some pastors realize they really messed up. Uh, but some pastors realize the winds of time are changing. And so as the winds change, so does their position on something. So how do you distinguish between the two? I mean, that's challenging. But we, we attack whatever is not of the truth. And whatever, whatever I preach, I want it to be gospel-centered in my teaching. Here's the, here's, the, here's the challenge. There's a challenge on both sides. Because if you want to be gospel-centered, uh, what happens sometimes is, is that liberals and progressives will use that to shut up conservatives and conservative churches from addressing social and cultural issues. They'll say, that, that's unbiblical, that's not loving, you're minimizing the gospel. Interestingly enough, you hear those same arguments from conservatives. Like, stay on the main thing. That's not loving. You're minimizing the gospel. Listen, um, it's, it's a cheap way out for conservatives to not have to deal with hot-button issues. And if we're called to be salt and light, then we're called to address the culture where it's at. To be prophetic to it, to call it to repentance. I mean, if you're going to call it to repentance... Like, what are you calling it to repentance for? And what are you calling it to turn away from? Again, if we have a sacred-secular divide, and we tell people, yes, you know, you have spiritual issues that you need to get right with, well, yeah, but there's also wrong thinking in there. There's faulty foundations. There's bad worldviews. And all of that has to be transformed by what Christ does when he regenerates the soul. Thankfully, God in his goodness, he trans- I mean, quicker than the snap of a finger, when you get saved, that's how quick the regeneration occurs. It's fast. But then the sanctification, there's that instant sanctification, but there's also an ongoing sanctification. The scriptures use both present tense and even future tense and actually past tense when it talks about our sanctification. So yes, Uh, We were justified. We actually were, past tense, sanctified and are being sanctified and will be fully sanctified once we get to glory. So we're learning. We're growing. The Lord is is slowly and and surely like molding us exactly how he wants us. Is anyone there yet? No. Maybe those that have have gone before it, I mean, they're there. Our brothers and sisters that that are in heaven. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet. 
you know, I was, and I mentioned this last week, I'm, you know, starting the new year, it's just a good opportunity to take inventory of, of where you're at. How did the last year go? And what are some things that you'd like to see for yourself, for your family, as the new year begins? And for that, for that year. And so, like, what are things that what we need to take out? What are things that we're probably doing? Maybe they're time wasters. Maybe they're just not, not good. Maybe they're sin. Always get rid of that. But what are things that we could be doing to help in our sanctification? I mean, I want this year, I want to go grow close, closer to Christ than I was closer to him last year and then the year before. If we're honest, there's been years where maybe we haven't grown as much. Maybe we've even backslid a little bit. But this is an opportunity for like, hey, God's done an amazing work in each one of us. I want to keep growing closer to him. If I truly believe in him and have truly trusted in him, then I want to say no to sin, and I want to say yes to him. How can I best do that heading into 2024? What things, specific steps, can I take? It was interesting. I was talking with... Uh, a member who had gone here, it's been over 15 years. Um, They were saying to me just this past week, it was kind of sad, that they hadn't been to a church since, and they'd been to a couple, uh, more than a couple, which had addressed the topic of abortion. Not, Not one time in 15 years. These issues have to be addressed. And every, every church can sometimes fall, if they're not careful, we, I endeavor not to, to be uh, kind of pigeonholed in what the sermon is each week. I try and strive not to, to make sure that it kind of helps if you're going through a book, in my opinion, that you're hitting whatever the book is hitting. It also helps so that when that particular topic comes up, then you don't think I'm picking on you. Okay? But let me just tell you, I'm always picking on you. And that's kind of my job in a loving way. So what was the main message of Jesus? Repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Look at Mark chapter 1. So Mark chapter 1, Mark really doesn't waste any time in in his book. And he just kind of jumps into it. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That verse alone, I mean, is a very strong, powerful theological statement. So he goes into it. He talks about verse 4, John appearing on the scene. Verse 9, Jesus ends up getting baptized. Then verse 12, we get the... Uh, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And then verse 14 of Mark 1, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And that's his message. That's his message. Mark nicely lays it out for us. But Matthew will say the same thing. Luke will say the same thing. John will say the same thing. That's the main message. But have you read at least one of the Gospels before? Yes? Hopefully all four. 
So that's the main message, and it gets repeated a whole lot. But Jesus also addressed many, many other things. Praise the Lord. And here's the thing. If you avoid controversial topics, uh, what left is there to say? I mean, really. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Is that controversial or not? It's controversial. I mean, just next time you're at Walmart, like walk up to someone and say that and see what their reaction is, okay? (laughs) Jesus is God, controversial or not? Controversial. No other name under heaven by which we can be saved except the name of Jesus. Controversial. Christianity is the only true religion. Controversial. So if you don't talk about controversial topics, I mean, there's really not too much to talk about. What am I going to preach about? The gospel itself. Controversial. The gospel itself. It's an offense. Why? I mean, it offends people to say that they're sinners and that they can do nothing to save themselves. That their only hope is not in themselves, but in someone else. That offends. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter 2, verse 4. It says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. I mean, Jesus himself, we're being told here, he's a stumbling block for people. But he's the cornerstone. The cornerstone for us is a stumbling stone for others. It's the same Jesus, right? Same Jesus. Well, how is that? Because people reject the truth. They reject spiritual truths. They reject all sorts of truths. They reject truths that 20 years, no one have even thought about rejecting. A man can be a woman. Yes, apparently. But no, they can't. So, like, Corinthians talks about 2 Corinthians, you know, uh, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And and we're seeing it more so now than ever. It's not just like, uh, it's a spiritual blindness, but it's not just regarding spiritual things. It's everything. There's a darkness and a blindness there. So Jesus himself, he's the rock of offense, as it says. 
And when, when different people in the Scriptures, the apostles, addressed people, when Jesus Himself addressed people, He didn't hold back. And listen, if, if you really love the Lord, you don't want your pastor to hold back. Jesus didn't hold back. He, I mean, he addressed topics people didn't want to hear, but they needed to hear. He addressed taxes, political leadership, uh, racism, parable of the good neighbor, the woman at the well. He addressed uncleanness, the woman bleeding for 12 years, the lepers, like all of it he was willing to touch, literally, in some instances. Even Peter didn't hold back. Look at Acts chapter 2. So people get filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. They're speaking in different languages. Verse 14, it says, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. I mean, that's his introduction to his sermon. What does he say further? Verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Where does he lay the blame? On all of them. Men of Israel. Men of Israel. You crucified and killed it, the lawless men are the ones that did it, but you partook in it. He doesn't hold back. Listen, they, they didn't, you know, Peter ended up getting crucified. Did you know that later on? They crucified him upside down. Um, the, the, the story goes that he didn't want to be crucified right side up because he didn't feel like he deserved up to die the same way his Savior did. So they crucified him upside down. They didn't crucify him because he was preaching sugar and roses. And Paul didn't hold back either. Look at Acts chapter 14. Acts 14, verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Well, why'd they stone him? I mean, they didn't stone him because he was preaching, you know, God wants you to be you. You know, you do you. Put yourself first. God wants you to be happy. That's not why they stoned him. They stoned him. He was preaching the truth. And it was offensive to them. And they, he put Christ before them, and what happened? They tripped in a big way. So they didn't murder Paul because he was preaching you know, sugar and roses. And think about the Apostle John. He ends up on the island of Patmos. I mean, why does he get exiled? 
because he's preaching sugar and roses? No. No. So he preached Jesus, and it was costly. Here's my question for us. What does it cost you? What does it cost you? What does your Christianity cost you? Because there's a cost of discipleship that Jesus talks about in the book of Luke. The cost of discipleship. It should cost you something to follow Christ. You know, today we live in a culture of death, and it's all around us. My own dad, when he had his last stroke, I was surprised how quickly the option of letting him die was put on the table by the doctors. I was like, why, why is this an option? And the answer is, we're concerned about his quality of life. I was like, what do you mean by quality of life? A little tactics there. <clears throat> I mean, is he, is he going to be alert? Will he be of relative sound mind? Well, yes. With effort, could he regain, even partially, whatever functions he might have lost with this stroke? Yes. Then why are we having this conversation? Like, a one-armed kid's quality of life won't be the same. I would disagree. A Down syndrome's kid's quality of life won't be the same. I would disagree. But that's what the medical profession puts before us. And so, yeah, people get a scan, and the kid has... I just was reading an article the other day. Uh, the kid had, is, is missing a hand or an arm, and the doctors were encouraging an abortion. So that's less than, in their opinion. And part of it is about, about convenience. We've, we've heard the false statistics that, that women get abortion, you know, and it's a financial, it, finances play into it because they can't afford the baby. Can't afford the baby. Have you heard that? Yes. Well, single women who earn $40,000 a year or more abort uh, their baby one-third of the time. One-third of the time, single women. Single women making 12000 a year or less abort their baby 9% of the time. So it's not a money issue, it's a convenience issue. Why? Because our society teaches that at the pinnacle of life, like way, 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 way at the top, if you look way, way th up there, who's there? Oh, it's you. That's what our society teaches. You're at the top, and you need to do you, and you need to do what's best for you. What does the Scripture say? Philippians 2. Put Whose interests above your own? Others' interests. Others' interests above your own. But, you know, sadly, we have a bloodlust in our land. Look at Psalm 5. Here's what he says, Psalm 5, verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful 
shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And this is the Lord's opinion. His opinion is the opinion. His opinion is true. He abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. So we kill, we murder for convenience, we maim perfectly good bodies because someone wants their body parts cut off. I mean, imagine asking your doctor to cut off your arm because you identify as a one-armed man. I mean, that doesn't make sense. So we murder for convenience. Look at Proverbs chapter 29. Proverbs 29, verse 10. Bloodthirsty men hate one who is blameless and seek the life of the upright. Wow. You know when you search pregnancy on Google, the top result is for Planned Parenthood. You think that's by accident? Not end pregnancy, just just pregnancy. You can even do it in, in uh, incognito mode, you know, where it's like the hidden browser feature. Do it. I did it both ways. Planned Parenthood first hit. Not even a sponsored ad. No, it's just that's what we're being thrown at us. Brothers and sisters, life is precious from the womb to the tomb. And we want to make sure people know that. Yesterday, um, SCCHE, St. Charles uh, Christian Home Educators, um, has, uh, as part of, of the large group, <clears throat> over the years there's just been different uh, ladies that have lost their husbands. And so SCCHE stays in contact with those ladies, actually helps them um, a little bit financially. And yesterday we ended up hosting at our house uh, a widow's lunch that, that Margaret and Andrea put on. Well, why is that? Because we want to make sure that people know that they're cared for and that we love them and that we're going to be there with them. And we have, you know, I mean, just think about it. I was, I was privileged to be there uh, when Lynette Benson breathed her last breath and, and we were heartbroken. But guess what? She was heart-mended. And all the aches, the pains, the suffering that Lynette had been going through, more than, than most of us probably ever will. I mean, it was all, it was all gone, just like that. So, so don't despair. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes we can get into despair. But, but this life isn't all that there is. There is the life to come. That's what we're, we're focusing on. So our sister... Cindy Wilson and our brother Brian Nebone and, and others that have gone before us, beset with sickness, illness, disease. All that was gone in the blink of an eye. 
and they've, they've been set free. Experiencing and seeing things now, some of them for, for years, that, that we long to see. And we are given the promise, we one day will. So my encouragement for us is to continue to fight and stand for truth, including on the issue of life. Almost every person ever to be born, almost every person ever to be born, had a mom that was pro-life for at least nine months for them. It's true. And listen, it, it took... It took 49 years for us to get here to Roe v. Wade being overturned a couple years ago. 49 years. And I think some of us made a mistake and we're like, whew, like, hey, we made it. And in one sense, that's true. But brothers and sisters, what we've seen is we probably have another 49 years that we're going to have to fight. Because now it's back at the state level. So what immediately happened? Actually, if we have that a slide, maybe I will use that slide. <clears throat> uh, I'll call for it in a sec. But what happened was it went back to the states. And so then each state, depending on if it was conservative or liberal, started passing laws according to those lines, right? Now in some states, the legislatures uh, and the governor were split in different things. But what we're seeing is, is, is those states that were more conservative like started putting in restrictions right away. Other states where it was actually already legal to murder a baby uh, and tried to enshrine it even more and succeeded and actually tried to even throw open the doors even more. But there's, there's 22 states. We can put that slide up. I mean, there are 22 states that have act, enacted some type of pretty serious restrictions on abortion. You can see it in the blue ones. They're shaded in behind. One of the arguments uh, is, is about <clears throat> um, all these states, you know, if something happened to the mother, there's no, because of these laws, you can't, you can't save the mother. Well, uh, states with laws preventing treatment is, is on, the, is on the, other, the bottom half. There's no states that prevent treatment for women in, in emergency situations that are pregnant. But we have 22. I think there's three states right now where it's tied up in the courts. There's actually, if you can believe it or not, a whole lot of abortions going on in, in Florida um, because the Supreme Court, something has worked its way up to the Florida Supreme Court and it's kind of been tied up there um, and it hasn't been decided. There is a belief that it will likely be decided in favor of the restrictions that have been put there. Um, and, 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 but right now, uh, at least the last I, I checked recently this past week, that hadn't been decided yet. So there's actually a, a good deal of abortions going on there um, because they're just traveling over from some of those western states because it's, it's more easily accessible. But the idea is, is that it's going to take potentially another 49 years to get those other 28 states. I believe with the Lord on our side, that's possible. I believe if we're taking the gospel and shining it, and we are being active with our voices, and we are being salt and light, the Lord can definitely do that. If he can do that with Roe v. Wade, he can do it state by state by state. So now is the time to continue to pray, to continue to give to those organizations, to continue to serve, because we want to see 
and stand for what the Lord stands for. He stands for life. It was, it was amazing. I don't know if any of you got to see the March for Life. Um, we've sent people before to be a part of that. But uh, one of the college football coaches, actually the one who just won the national championship just like two weeks ago, uh, Jim Harbaugh, uh, made a surprise appearance at the March for Life. Uh, I've known he was pro-life and because he's pretty outspoken on that. But uh, he, he tells his players and his staff that if any of them ever deal with an unplanned pregnancy and, and they're, they're going to abort, like he, will, he and his wife will adopt the kid. He tells all his players that. And he's told, um, he's told his players and his staff regularly, he, he says, I encourage them, if they have a pregnancy that wasn't planned, to go through with it. Go through with it. Let that unborn child be born. And if at that time you don't feel like you can care for it, you don't have the means or the wherewithal, then Sarah, his wife, and I will take that baby. And he's telling this to young men on a secular university campus. Giant, big football players. He's telling this to them unabashedly, unashamedly. I don't know what the... Uh, if, 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 if Brian Ebone was still here with us, he'd know the answer. He was a big Michigan fan. <clears throat> I don't know how many are on the campus of, of uh, the University of Mich Michigan. I guess it would be between 50 and 75,000, something like that. But, but he is using the influence he has to speak truth to those people. And I would guess he's been used by the Lord to save numerous babies. By encouraging, it wouldn't surprise me if he's probably financially assisted some of those men that their girlfriends or potentially wives have gotten pregnant and were thinking about ending it, he's come alongside. I mean, he, he, he put his money where his mouth is, right? It's interesting, they've done studies in Nazi Germany. They've studied voting records and the churches and the theology being taught in different areas. The Nazis were the strongest where biblical Christianity was the weakest. I mean, they've done these studies. It's not something that people really, well, people debate everything, but it's not something people really debate. <clears throat> and the areas <clears throat> where Christianity, biblical Christianity, was the strongest, the Nazis did not thrive. They did not have influence in those areas of Germany. So, biblical Christianity, God has given us the answer for a dying world. Given us the spiritual answers to aid and minister to people, to offer them a lifeline to those that are dying. And those that got saved later in life, you, you probably have, including me, <clears throat> in fact, I was reading a, uh, a quote earlier today, I mean, when you get saved, like, out of the sewer, and you've been living there and drinking the sewer water for years and years, and then you see Jesus come along and offer you the well of water of eternal life, it's amazing and tastes wonderful. So you don't even dream of going back to that because you know what that was and you know what you have. Well, we just need to be reminded of that sometimes. Because it's a sweet, sweet, sweet water 
that each of us has been given to drink. The lady, <clears throat> the Samaritan at the well, right? She, she was confused by it. So what did, I mean, Jesus needed to explain it. Well, guess what? People are confused today. They're confused by the water, and we need to tell them about the water that leads to eternal life, about Jesus himself. God has been gracious to us, been gracious to us. If you're here, if you're a born-again believer, if you've repented and trusted in Jesus, I mean, you've been given an infinite gift that you did nothing to deserve. Nothing. We're saved by faith through grace. Nothing did you do to deserve it. And God pours out his grace upon you. Pours out his grace and pours out his grace and pours out his grace. And then guess what? He pours out some more grace. And that's what we walk in. Like, that's what we're walking in. In the, in the shower of his grace raining down upon us every single day. God is gracious to actually have some of that grace. We would probably call it like a common grace to rain down on everyone. Like, good things happen to even unbelievers. God prospers people who don't even follow after him. He's actually good even to those who aren't good. Part of that is to show how good and amazing and awesome he is with the hopes they will see that. Romans 1, what does the scripture show? What does the creation cry out? There's a God. And the hope is people realize that and they're like, hey, I probably need to figure out who this God is. Well, we do know what happens. What happens? People reject the truth and exchange it for a lie. But God is still gracious to open up their eyes and it's him that opens it. He opens up their eyes. And anyone who's a believer, you've had your eyes opened. Maybe not in some amazing awe shock way. I mean, in one sense, it's always amazing in awe shock way. Maybe you just didn't feel that. But it's, but it's true. He opens our eyes. And we see things completely different. The veil is gone. The darkness has been lifted. It's like, you know, you ever get up in the middle of the night, you're all stumbling around. I actually, I'm praise the Lord, I slept through the night for the first time last night uh, since I injured my shoulder back in August. So five months. And the alarm went off today, and I was like, what is that sound? I'm not used to hearing that. <laughs> not used to hearing that for the first time as I wake up. <clears throat> but you wake up in the darkness, and you, I mean, you're stumbling around. The light goes on. What, what normally what happens, you're like, ah, oh, right? I mean, it's real bright if you turn it on in the middle of the night. But, but the darkness is exposed. It's easier to get around. Well, who is the light? Christ is the light. He shines. He shines. John 1, the light comes into the darkness. Thankfully, the light comes into this darkness too, right? Comes in here, removes the darkness, replaces the heart of stone with the heart of flesh. We serve a good and gracious God. Amen? Let's continue to stand with him and for his truths. And let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we serve the King of kings and Lord of lords, the God of gods, who is above all, who has shined into our hearts the truth and the light of the gospel. You've renewed us, you've regenerated us, you've transformed us. Thank you for the life that we have in Jesus. Lord, use us to be 
to be the ambassadors, the change agents to touch people's lives, whether we're uh, harvesting or gardening or whatever we're, we're doing that particular day with the truth of the scriptures, let us do it faithfully. And we do pray against the scourge of abortion on this land. Root it out completely, Lord. We ask, we pray, convict men. You can use unbelieving men and women even to help accomplish your purposes. So we pray, Lord, you would, you would use men and women in the United States. Use them to root this out. Do it, God, by your power and grace. Use the church to stand firm, to speak truth, to send forth people into the civil sphere to speak truth and stand firm. Thank you for the ones already there. They're under fire daily. Protect them. May they continue to stand firm. May they continue to say no to the lusts of the flesh, to the, to the pride of life, to the lusts of money, God. Stand firm at whatever level you have them in, in the civil sphere. And may the same be true for us, God. May we continue to pray, give, speak to it, and act as necessary, God. For your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.